I'm Ann Rapp, and I'm the director-producer of the documentary Horton Foot: The Road to Home. Look at this big Texas sky, Horton. Yeah. Do you think that's been one reason why your plays have so much space in them? My plays come out of a lot of meditation. I do not know where they come from, but they're very per persuasive when they start going in me. They make demands. There's a letter just now waiting for me at home from this girl in College Station. She's having a baby. Uh, she, she wrote me she thought I was the father. I could be. Horton, I think, is way up there in the pantheon of American playwrights, way, way up there. Anything a Horton I like doing. It's the kind of thing you can't force his material as an actor. You can't push it because it's very kind of delicate. I'd like to express my gratitude to the cast and crew of Tender Mercies. He worked in theater, he worked in film, and he worked in television. So everybody sort of sees part of his career, but they don't see the whole thing. The winner is Horton Foote for The Killer Mockingbird. The Office Home Cycle is a series of nine plays, which is an attempt at writing about my family. It was never a question to me that he would be this active, because he, he can't not write. Lights come up, and Horace Jr. enters. What you really, as a writer, are trying to strive for is a sense of truth. And the truth can be very amusing sometimes, but then sometimes it's heartbreaking. Horton understood that in a play, people to be interesting don't have to have any qualities except humanity to them. I have to tell you this, even when your father gets well, I can't live with him again. I don't love him anymore. I'm on the side of those of us who have to struggle in the world. He knew that he was speaking for, for everybody. The details equal the universal. Oh, Mama, I lied to you. I do remember. I remember so much. This house, the life here. Mama, I want to stop remembering. My wife is there, and my brother, and his wife. And I'll be there. <laughs> There's a place for my body between Hunter's grave and my two girls. That's where I'll end up, out on the prairie. I've tried to write about New England, but it's never been with my heart and for the sense of I am home, and this is my home, and this is my territory. Listen. You hear that? The wind on the prairie. I think there'll be a storm tonight. I never mind them, you know. Storms comfort me somehow. That is the trailer for the recently released documentary Horton Foot: The Road to Home. And this is Factual America. We're brought to you by Alamo Pictures, a production company that makes documentaries about America for international audiences. Uh, today we're talking about Horton Foot, the award-winning playwright and screenwriter, and helping us to learn more about this Texas and American legend is celebrated screenwriter herself, Anne Rapp. So, Anne, uh, welcome to Factual America. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
Yeah, how are things with you? Are you in Austin? I'm in Austin, Texas. Yes, I am. All right. Well, um, uh, I should give you congratulations on the film, uh, Horton Foot Road to Home. Uh, premiered at the, it premiered at Austin Film Festival, didn't it? And it, uh, congratulations on the Audience Award. Oh, well, thank you. Yes, we were thrilled to get that. That's always one of the nicest feelings, you know, especially a documentary at a festival like Austin. It's a wonderful festival, but it's known more for its narrative films. It's not a real documentary, particularly a documentary-oriented festival. And, and so it was nice to get, a, uh, get some accolades there. And uh, it's, uh, people seem to really love this film. Yeah. And so I was thrilled with that award. Well, I think, uh, well, I mean, and I understand why you got the award. I mean, now that I have had the privilege of seeing it, um, actually that brings up a point. Um, do you know when and how this will get released to a wider audience? We have not, I am just starting to take those steps. Um, I have not gone down any particular road yet. I'm, I'm, I'm in the, uh, uh, advice gathering uh, mode of that right now, trying to figure out the best home for this. Uh, I'm a, I am a first time documentary filmmaker. I've been a writer for a long time. I've been in the movie business for most of my adult life. I was a script supervisor for many years on a lot of feature films yeah. and I've written feature films that have been produced. And, but uh, this is my first you know, segue into the documentary world. So I'm kind of learning it a step at a time yeah. And now I'm in this sort of festival mode. I wanted to see what the uh, reaction was for one thing. And it, because I thought that'll tell me a little something about where this film belongs. And uh, one of the things that has been so lovely and has given me a slight bit of direction is so many people have said to me, every young writer should see this film, that, that there is no way a young writer, any young artist, as a matter of fact, can't benefit from watching this film and watching Horton Foote's process. And it gives me a little bit more of a, a guide on which direction maybe I need to go with, uh, with distributing it, because I wanna make sure there's an audience out there for Horton Foote, but it's mainly an older audience, an mm -hmm. arts audience, people like myself who kind of know his work and kind of grew up on it or whatever. But that's not the only audience. I think there's a, also a much younger audience for this. So I'm trying to find that perfect place and um, we'll see what happens. But it's, uh, we're the newbie, the newborn, just sort of, you know, catching our breath and uh, we'll find it. All right. Well, I think, uh, I mean, what's interesting for you is first time documentary filmmaker learning the ropes, but the rules are all being changed because of COVID and everything. So oh, no gosh. one really no one really knows what's going on do they that that does change it a lot yeah uh, you know i've spoken to there's a an old friend of mine from dallas who i kind of came up in the industry with and we all kind of went our separate ways at, and found our spot in the industry but he he became a uh a, a kind of a player in the distribution world and he's i've already been talking to him for advice and he that's the first thing he said to me he said he said, I'd have a whole game plan for this if this were normal times. Yeah. But these are not normal times. And the downside is, is you know, it's, it's hard to get out there and do things in person with it and, you know, rile up an audience in person and all of that because uh, everything's virtual. Uh, on the other hand, there's, 
maybe a better, a good market for it right now because productions have been shut down for so long and are just starting up again. And so people are looking for content, but it still doesn't help you in the, in that uh, path to finding it, you know? Mm. Um, So uh, it's a, it's a difficult time. And it was a, I've been working on this film for over 13 years. And believe me, when I finally got it finished this year, and I'm ready to come out of the gate with it, and it's pandemic time. Yeah, you know the the ego side of me is like, what? I don't get my red carpet, you know. <laughs> but that's not what it's about. I, it's uh, we'll find we'll find it. It'll find its path, and maybe this will be in our favor. Who knows? Yeah, I I think it, I think you're going to find an audience for this. I, I'm almost certain. Um, and, and you just said, what is it all about? Well, we know it's about Horton Foot, and. Um, now, for our audience out there, many, I will guess, uh, depending on their age and where they're based, uh, will not know who Horton Foote is. So maybe you can just give us a little background on, on this man who is also your friend, I believe. Okay, yes. Well, Horton was a, he, he was actually one of the greatest playwrights of the 20th century. Um, he was uh, uh, he, he started out writing in the uh, uh, pretty much in the in the forties, you know. But he 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 uh, when he was young, he wanted to. He thought he wanted to be an actor. He grew up in a small town in in Texas called Horton W H A R T O N. It's very similar to his name. It's outside of Houston by, by a little bit, and uh, he got this sort of calling that he decided he wanted to be an actor and he went down that path for a while and he found his way to Pasadena, California, and then ultimately to New York. And very shortly after that, his skill as a writer became very apparent to a lot of people he was working with. And this story is all kind of told in the film, but he started writing uh, and he initially was just writing plays and he, Horton wrote plays his entire life. If you asked him what his second home was, it was a theater, not television or movies or, you know, movie set. But he uh, turned a, over a 70-year career. He, the, the, a lot of his plays were made into television shows and made into movies. Uh, but he always kept writing plays as well. And um, he had a big TV uh successful uh, era in the 50s. And then he was back in the uh, writing plays in the 60s and 70s and in the early 80s is when his movies, he had a few movies before and spread out, but that's when his little indie movies started taking off. And um, so uh, some people know him as a, a, they go, oh, I know Horton Foote movies. I know, uh, he wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. He wrote Tender Mercies. Or other people know his television. Other people know his plays. A lot of, most people don't know the whole bulk of it. But the most important thing about Horton to know and what I try to tell in the film is that he wrote for 70 years with his material was primarily all based on one small town in Texas. And it was based loosely on his hometown. Uh, he renamed it to Harrison, Texas. And all of the characters are, you know, mixtures of people and makeup made up make, make believe but um and he was one of those writers who wrote primarily about one place and but, but was very successful at it 
across all these genres, you know. And so he died in 2009, he was 92 years old. And um, he died with a legal pad and a pen in his hand. He was still writing. He had, he had a, just finished on Broadway and they were in the process of doing a, a big nine play opus uh, when he died. And um, so he never stopped working, All right. you know? Yeah. Well, I think early on in the film, you've got, uh... There's a there's a segment there which I think is quite powerful. You've got all these amazing people. Um, where do you begin? Edward Albee, you've got Robert Duvall, you've got Matthew Broderick, all these people. And I'm not doing justice to all the other ones that you've got in there who not, not only just sing Horton Foote's praises, but kind of put them in uh, context and perspective about the the strength of this, of this I would say, sort of unsung uh gentleman playwright so uh why don't we uh if and thank thank you for sharing those clips with us why don't we uh uh have a listen or for those who are watching on youtube have a look at this uh clip it gives you even more of a feel for uh, who we're talking about when we say uh we're going to be discussing horton foot today there's a lot of people in the arts who should be a lot more famous than they are but when you look at the list of 20th century playwrights I don't think he has any superiors. The most interesting thing about Horton's plays is that he doesn't write characters, he writes people. His writing is almost like poetry. I mean, it's not something you would want to be loose with. It's very musical, it's very it's beautiful. It's like, you know how you can get a song in your head and you can listen to that same song for maybe ever? That's the way his plays are. Anything of Horton I like doing. It's the kind of thing you can't forces material as an actor you can't push it because it's very kind of delicate things don't appear to be happening but in fact they constantly are and the most subtle expression is could be devastating he had the capacity to have such a, a clear honest eye about human beings and their foibles but he loves them anyway horton was as honest a playwright in terms of the truth of the human condition and anybody that I know of. You'll hear lots of people talk about how, what a gentle, kind, sweet person Horton was. And he was all of those things. But Horton Foote was one of the fiercest individuals I know. Through just sheer will, made these human beings come to life in the way he saw them, not by the way he thought people wanted to see them. Horton's brain was a steel trap and he knew exactly what he wanted and how it should be. He worked in theater, he worked in film, and he worked in television. So everybody sort of sees part of his career, but they don't see the whole thing. After To Kill a Mockingbird, people mostly knew To Kill a Mockingbird, but they didn't know Horton Foot. I mean, I think there's some powerful things that are said there, and I guess we'll explore them a little bit more in detail as, we're, as we continue talking about um, uh, about Horton's work. Uh, but in terms of your film, I mean, what is, uh, could you give us maybe a little synopsis of what the film is? Because it's, it's more than just saying here's Horton's life. I mean, uh, maybe you can give us a little background or, you know, what, what, is, what is this Road to Home about? Well, you know, I, I wanted to, uh, there's a couple of things I wanted to accomplish with, with this film. Obviously, I wanted to, uh, obviously, the first thing is I want to make all those people aware of Horton who are not aware of him. Um, he is what some people have called the greatest playwright you've never known. 
you know, he, uh, he's a very modest man who didn't toot his own horn very much, never beat his own chest. So uh, he, uh, I don't, I feel like he hasn't had quite the accolades that he should have had, you know, but my, my other missions with this film, I wanted to give the audience um, not, a, not only a look at his work and do a, you know, a, something of a historical, uh, take a little historical journey with him, but I wanted them to also get to know the man himself, because with somebody like Horton, getting to know a little bit about who he is and where he's coming from, it gives you a, a much better sense of why he wrote the kind of material he wrote and why he wrote uh, uh, in a way that he never wavered from, even whether, when he went through periods of time where it maybe wasn't all that popular. He just kept writing what he, what he knew and what he loved and what he believed in. And um, he never changed for popularity. He never changed for the changes out there. He just waited for them to come back to him. And there's a reason for that, you know, when you're so grounded in what, what your stories are. And um, I felt like I, I was very, very fortunate that I had a personal relationship with Horton uh, when we started filming him because I had been his, I'd been the script supervisor. It started my career, actually, the movie Tender Mercies. I was hired as script supervisor on that. And I became friendly with Horton at the time. And we kind of stayed in touch all, all those years. You know, we, this was long before cell phones or computers or internet or anything. And we would write cards and letters. You know, we never lived in the same city, uh, but uh, we never lost touch. And uh, so, when he, when I moved back to Texas in 2000, he was 90 years old, and uh, he uh, was he was living with his daughter Hallie in, in Los Angeles. But she would bring him down to the homestead. They still had their homestead in in Horton, and he would spend weeks or months riding down there. And I would always go down for these visits, and uh, he would just he, we would get in the car and drive all over town and spend a whole afternoon driving around with Horton, just looking out the window telling me stories about, well, so-and-so used to live here and that guy killed his brother and this used to be a cotton field and the sheriff did this here and whatever. And uh, I realized after a couple of those trips down there that I was kind of getting the backdrop of all of his work. And I asked him to put a, if I could put a camera on him simply because I felt like somebody needed to be recording this. Yeah. I was vaguely thinking documentary, but not really. I was just thinking this needs to be on film, but you know, and uh, uh, so as this documentary evolved, you know, I wanted to give everyone that inside look that I had, you know, I wanted to share this, not with, you know, I could have stayed on the outside and done a very historical documentary and very archival thing that wasn't very personal, but I, I just, I had such a great personal experience with him that I wanted to share that as well. Yeah. And I think it goes, <clears throat> I think it goes hand in hand with his work. I don't think it's two separate pieces. Here's his work. Look at, look at the man. Yeah. It, 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 it's his humanity, his uh, integrity, his empathy, everything 
bleeds into his work, even when he's writing very flawed characters and tough stories. That bleeds into his work in just a wonderful way. And I wanted to, I wanted to share with the audience who he was as a man. And so I got on, I tried to get on the inside and I hope I accomplished that because it's, uh, I think it's important to that whole story. And in in doing this, because you, as you said, you've been friends uh, since what, 1983, Um, you'd been trading cards and letters, but now you're spending time with him on, on these trips back to Horton and uh, you've got a camera on him. Um, I mean, what did you, did you learn anything? I mean, obviously you learn things new, you learned about facts and family history and stuff, but is it, did you get to appreciate him in a different light once you started uh, kind of spending this kind of time with him? Uh, you know, I, I, I would find him, the best way to answer that, I think, is I just found him more and more delightful yeah. every time. You know, he was, uh, he, lucky for me, he wasn't nervous with me on camera. He almost forgot the camera was there. Somehow he had a really comfortable uh presence with me talking to him about his work and um uh, i i don't think that i have the copyright on that i think he was just a comfortable man in his own he was he was kind of shy and understated in some ways but he was a comfortable man in his own skin he wasn't a recluse or anything i think he kind of enjoyed sharing his life with me and he and i could he was very conversational with me because he felt comfortable with me but as far as what I learned, uh, knew about him, or that, you know, if that was a different journey, I, what, what I found interesting with Horton is I, I had gone to the, uh, they gave us the full uh, reign of, their, of his archives, which are up at the uh, library at SMU. Okay. And uh, so I got a lot of archival stuff that, you know, from the family up there. And I looked at many, many interviews that Horton did in earlier days, you know, when he was younger or news interviews or whatever. And also I'd heard Horton speak publicly, you know, at various times in his life. And Horton always had this complete eloquence about him when he was speaking. He was, he, he was very eloquent in this sort of soft, uh, believable way. Uh, and, uh, but I, but I found that, as he got older and when I would have, I did most of the filming of him in the hometown. Yeah. So I had him just relaxed in his environment. And what I found that was so delightful about him was that he would reverse back to the language of the people there that he wrote about. You know, he could stand in front of a microphone in New York and, and just, you know, knock you out with, with his eloquence. But I got a, I got even a different language from him, which is, you know, he would say things like, just an example, he would say uh, things like um, somebody, we asked him a question in the film about where his place come from, but, you know, basically, and he said, I do not know, but they are very powerful when they start going in me. You know, that's the language. Yeah. That's not the same language of the eloquent Horton that is, accepts his Oscars. Yeah. This yeah. is a man who won two Academy Awards, an Emmy Award. That's right. What's the prize for drama? Got the National Medal of Arts from Bill Clinton when he was president. The man has stood in front of a lot of microphones in front of a lot of people and was comfortable there. But he would say things like, 
you know, his, when, when they approached him to write To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, and he was hedging, he was busy, too busy doing his own thing, and he didn't want to read the book, and his wife read the book and loved it and coaxed him to read it, but she said, the way Harton tells the story is, my wife said, you better get to reading that book, and that's, that's something, that, that's a line like Horton would write. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. but he, but he would revert to that uh, just sort of organically and naturally. It wasn't a put on. That was, a, that was the way he talked when he went back to his hometown. Yeah. And so those little nuances with Horton just thrilled me, you know. So I knew both of them, yeah. you know. And well, that's, I think that's, because uh, it's something I wanted to ask you about too, because uh, it's, it, kind of cliche but the other character we have horton and then we have horton the town and right. you know and or you know harrison texas versus horton i mean um was there anything there that you i mean as someone who is familiar with his work and now you're getting to see him in his hometown is there anything about the town that uh, surprised you um i mean is it you're from texas you know so is it your typical texas town or you know what would you say it, it, it is as typical as it gets. And let me just say this. I'm from a very small town, much, much smaller than Horton, Texas. Yeah. I'm from a tiny little town in the Texas panhandle called Esteline. My town had 300 people when I was growing up and has maybe 95 now. Uh, Horton was more like, I think it's got more like 3,000 people, you know, so it's 10 times bigger than my town. <laughs> but it's still a small town in Texas. Yeah. And... Um, it was a very typical town. It was it was county seat of the county, so that it had the courthouse on the courthouse square, yeah. with stores all around it on the square, and then just dotted with houses around, you know, in the, the neighborhoods. Uh, it was uh, as most small Texas towns now. Uh, it, there, there's a big highway that runs from Houston, you know, east west, and that that's on the edge of town. So out on that edge of town is every Holiday Inn Express and yeah. Chili's and you right. know all the towns and all of that. It looks just like any other town. You have to drive off the main road to get into the town square and see the charm of the town. Yeah. And uh, but the, what what Horton and I bonded over when we uh, met each other on the set of Tender Mercies, and I, I had his script in my lap the whole movie. That was my job. All the technical aspects of the script. Mm-hmm. And so I had a lot of conversations with Horton and uh, we didn't talk about, and we had just met. He didn't know me from Adam. Yeah. And I was a, a greenhorn. This was one of my first movies. So I was, you know, I was, I was a little nervous about it all, but um, we didn't talk about the arts. We didn't talk about movies. We didn't talk about theater. We didn't talk about any of that. He was, we talked about, he, he was infinitely curious about where I grew up. He's like, oh, you're from a small town in the Panhandle. And what would your daddy do? Oh, well, my daddy was a cotton farmer. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, he said, oh, my goodness, you know, our town, my, his daddy was a haberdasher and had a clothing store on the square. But their whole town uh, relied on the industry of cotton because mm-hmm. it was cotton country. So we would sit and talk for hours about, not hours on the set, but cumulative hours about cotton farms and cotton gins and <laughs> We, the fact that we prayed for rain all the time and they begged it not to rain because exactly. it was different, completely different. And um, so I know small town is as good as anybody out there. Mm. And this town, Horton, 
typical Texas small town. Yeah. You know, he made it, he made it something, you know, completely special, which every writer can do if they listen and pay attention. But it, if you just look at it from the outside, it looks like every small town in Texas. Yeah. And so, yet, I mean, like a lot of Texans, um, and I know, um, he ended up leaving and spending almost all of his adult life uh, away from, from Texas. Um, right. So um, I think mainly what, New York? Uh, well, you said he was living with his daughter in LA, but also I know he spent time in New England. And He was mainly, he was, he was pretty, prim, pretty much primarily in New York. And uh, uh, not, he lived in, also in Nyack when he started having the kids. Mm. And then he actually moved up to New Hampshire for a while and okay. raised the kids. He was up there in the, 60s and 70s kind of yeah you know and uh are somewhere in there i'm not sure what the exact dates are but uh yeah he raised all his children on the east coast and uh so he was mainly he only moved to california when uh when he was older and his wife had died uh and he went to live with hallie who his oldest daughter who lived in la so but so he but he really didn't have a run much in la he was he was pretty much new york but what I was going to ask you about is, I mean, obviously, Wharton, the town, is 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 where all of his, well, most of his material comes from, what he wrote about. But how would you describe his relationship with Texas? His relationship with Texas? Well, obviously, he loved Texas, and it was in his bones to the core, because that's all he wrote about, pretty much. Uh as he says in the film, he says, I tried to write about New England and I was just never could quite, never connected with him. So obviously the Texas experience was, uh, that was, and he never let go of that home and it's yeah. still there if the kids have it, you know. But, um, uh, so he had this, he had this genuine love of it. But you know, all writers are all different this way. If, you know, if there are a lot of writers who have to be in the environment, where they're writing. Mm. And Faulkner is one of those guys. You know, Faulkner essentially wrote about one county in Mississippi, his whole. That's, that's and right. he, got, he got dragged out to Hollywood um, for a short period of time. And there's a famous story about that where, you know, he was working in the studio one day and he said, I, I, I know I'm not working very well here. I want to go home. And they said, sure, go home. Thinking he was going to go back to his apartment. <laughs> And LA, and he went home, home to Mississippi, and never went back. And uh, so he had to write at home. There are other writers that I think they need some distance. You know, I had a I had a friend who was a writer, very southern writer, and his voice was always very southern. And I asked him one time, but he always lived in uh, New York. And I said, why? because you've really maintained such a Southern voice and you still write so much as a Southerner, you know, why have you lived in New York all these years? And he said to me, he said, if I stayed in Georgia, he was from Georgia. He said, if I stayed in Georgia, I, I, I felt like I was writing skits for my parents. <laughs> so that was his experience. So yeah. everybody has a different way. I feel like as a writer myself, I write a lot about Texas and the South, but Sometimes my muse likes the deep south better than it does Texas. I've done some of my best writing in Mississippi and New Orleans, you know, and uh, I struggle a little bit if, if it's too much in my face. 
And uh, some writers are that way, you know, that you need a little bit of distance. One of my favorite uh, musicians in the world is Terry Allen, who's a great Texas musician. Mm. And Terry says, sometimes you have to leave a place to fall in love with it. Yeah. And I've always loved that because <laughs> I get it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'll, I'll leave Texas a lot because, but I'm in love with it. And I think that's what Horton had to do, you know? But it, but it was always ingrained in him, every cell. Well, I think that's a good point to uh, take a little break here for our listeners. And also, um, uh, over the break, we'll play a little clip from um, one of the monologues from one of uh, Horton's plays that you uh, interspersed throughout the film. And we'll be back shortly with Anne Rapp. You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases or upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. Now back to Factual America. Mama, I haven't made any kind of life for you. And I try so hard. I try so hard. Oh, Mama, I lied to you. I do remember. I remember so much. This house, the life here, the night you woke me up and dressed me, took me for a walk because there was a full moon, and I cried because I was afraid, and you comforted me. Mama, I want to stop remembering. It doesn't do any good to remember. Welcome back to Factual America. I'm here with Ann Rapp, director and producer of Horton Foot Road to Home, um, audience award winner at the Austin Film Festival. I'm sure there's probably other awards on their way. Um, Ann, why did it take you... Well, I think you just said earlier, 13 years to, to release this film. Well, that's, <laughs> there's a long answer to the long time that it took me, but I won't give you that long answer. I'll try to give you a shorter answer. Um, I, I, as I mentioned earlier in the, in the podcast, we, uh, I'm not a doctor filmmaker by trade. Uh, so this I had to learn a little bit as I was going on this. Uh, if I ever did another documentary, I think I would go a lot faster. Let me put it that way. <laughs> but um, uh, I, I wasn't even sure exactly what course this was going to take when I started filming Horton. I just kept a camera on him for two and a half, last two and a half years of his life. And I didn't go any direction any, until he passed away. That's when I started getting all the other interviews and all of that. So I kind of think of this film and, and it, it kind of played out for me in three acts okay. in a way. The first act of this film was, had a camera on Horton and that was the most exciting. And that was when I was just recording what I could get from him. Uh, then second after that, I, st I, got a, I started getting other footage and other interviews and that kind of thing. And that I was very comfortable with too because I've been in production my whole life. But once I started the editing process, that's where I was a little bit green at what I was doing. Uh, I had so much footage, this massive yeah. amount of footage. I, 
I swear to you, I have enough footage of Horton that didn't make the film that I could make another couple of, I could do a couple of sequels of this yeah. and still have just gold from that man. That, there, was, there was babies I had to kill that I, I just, it just killed me to see mm. him hit the cutting room floor. But uh, when I got into that editing process, it was daunting to me how the, I knew the story in my head that I wanted to tell. I knew that it had to be about this man and his connection to this town. And I wanted it to be a personal uh, journey of that. Um, but it was just really hard for me to wrangle it all into that first, very first rough cut that you start with. Yeah. And um, I went down a few, a few of the wrong paths in getting that done until I finally found the right path. And that would, uh, the translation of that is, I had to find the right guys to get into the editing room with. Mm. And that, that finally happened about three years ago. I also had another little, we had another little lag period in the middle when I ended up going back to work and doing some script supervisor jobs that kept me, would keep me busy like six months at a time. And my other two producers at that time were, neither one of them were documentary filmmakers either. And they were about making a living doing what they do. Right. And so it was a hard thing. We weren't just focusing on this. Anyway, I finally got into an editing situation that felt really good, really comfortable here in Austin with some of the greatest guys and they've helped me bring it in. And if that's what, if that is what has happened over the last couple of years, mainly. Okay. Uh, uh, we've kind of, I kind of got this thing back on track in 2018 and then it's been kind of nonstop from that point to, to now. And, uh, so to answer the question, I don't really know why I, I feel like we had the, the lag time in the middle, but there's a part of me that now that it's done and now that it's done at this time in 2020, I feel like it's karma because yeah. If there is ever a time that we need that, uh, another, a, a good role model of someone who is full of humanity and integrity, like I said earlier, and empathy and all those things that Horton, a lot of us are a little starved for that right now. Yeah. You know, it, there's a lot of fighting going out on out in the world out there, especially in America. Yeah. And um, everyone who sees this film, says to me, you know, that was a, that just soothed my soul for an hour and a half. I thank you so much for, for giving me that comfort. I, I get the word comfort comes up a lot. The, the, this film brings people comfort. And uh, it's a reminder of, uh, it's just a reminder of the way, for lack of a better way to say it, the way we're supposed to behave, you know, and uh, so there's a part of me that says this was all a this was all a plan. This was all karma. That now is the time for this film, you know. And so I don't re I don't regret I don't look back and regret the time it took me. I, I I think that's a very good point. And you raised some points I hadn't actually even thought of. The one thing that struck me because when I first started watching it, I was like I had to stop it actually for a minute because I was like wait a minute, Horton Foote died in 2009. This is him, and it's all about him. He's alive. So did this really just get released? I had to make sure, you know, because I'd been told the oh, film yeah. had just been released. And I'm, it doesn't feel like some, it feels like some was come out about 10 years ago. But 
I think what one thing that it does for me personally is it, it it's may I can't I'm I'm not the I'm not the I'm not the screenwriter that you are so I don't say it as eloquently but the it it's almost Horton speaking from the grave right you right. know and then and then as you say because uh, I think you're very very straightforward about this is that you know this isn't some guy who had some sentimental view of the past or anything like that that you know even though most of it, i guess his plays are set in uh what the tw- the teens the 20s the 30s wow. and, and you know whatever but uh uh you know there there's a lot but there is something there is something that maybe we all feel like we've lost there's some sort of is it civility i don't know and as you say there's also this uh empathy i guess that comes with yes. it as well yeah Civility, that's a good word. That's another good one, you know. Um, uh, it's true, you know, he never lost that. And it didn't mean that he, he wrote very, you know, some very tough stories and, and uh, some dark, dark stories. But, you know, you mentioning um, that you feel like Hartington has come out of the grave. Yeah. Uh, that reminds me of something that might be kind of interesting for you to know. Um, when one of the scariest things that I, when I got the film finished and it was done, finished, our last graphic went in, the whole thing, I knew the first thing I had to do was send this to uh, his daughter, Hallie, who's uh, very prominent in the film. Right. And um, uh, then his second daughter, Daisy, is also in the film. And uh, uh, I I called Hallie first and uh, Hallie even had a little trepidation about watching it. I think she knew it was going to pull up a lot of emotions. Yeah. And I also know that she, because she's, she knows how hard I worked on this and, and we're, we've been friends for a long time. I think Hallie was nervous for me that, oh my gosh, what, what's, what if I don't like this film? <laughs> yes. What am I going to say to my friend Dan? So yeah. Hallie was, had a little trepidation, but Daisy actually contacted me and said, can I see the film? And so I said, sure. And I sent it to Daisy right away. And it was very nerve wracking, you know, that because uh, those are that those that the what the family thinks of this film is more important to me than anything. Because I feel like if I do have one regret about the length of time it took me, it's that Horton never got to see it and see what I did with it. Yeah. Uh, but I knew that if I'd pleased the family, I probably would have pleased Horton. So anyway, uh, Daisy watched the film, I sent her that the film uh, one night right before I went to bed and I went, okay, it's out there now to the Foot family. And uh, she, at eight o'clock the next morning, she called me in tears. She was so happy about it. Mm. And she just went on and on about how she couldn't believe, she said, you know, I knew you were gonna make a good film, but I had no idea that you got my father like you did and that you could, she, she just couldn't say enough. Mm. And my whole body just, you know, I was just relieved. And I hung up and I went for a walk. And uh, about 20 minutes later, well, I'm on my walk and I'm just breathing because I'm happy that I pleased the first person in the Foot family. And I said, I, my phone rings and I look down and it's Daisy again. And she goes, there's one more thing I have to tell you. I forgot to tell you this one thing. And she kind of starts crying again. And she said, you know, I've been in one of those kind of pandemic writer slumps and I can't seem to get out of it and, and whatever. And she said, when I saw this film, I felt like my father was talking to me. Yeah. And I felt like he was saying to me, get off your butt, get back to work, get out of that slump. And she, she, and she told me this in this very emotional way. And I thought, wow, now that's about as good as it gets, you know? 
that, that's not for a filmmaker to hear that. Uh, having just made a film about her father, you know, I was, and sure enough, within 24 hours, once Hallie knew Daisy had seen the film, Hallie said, okay, I'm ready to see the film. Okay. And I got the same reaction from Hallie, of course. But uh, so, so I've, I've, it's been kind of wonderful in that way. But, uh, but it, it's interesting that you said you felt like it kind of came out of a, that, that sounds kind of morbid. It came out of the grave. Yeah, it does. He just kind of transcended to remind us. Yeah. Guys, stop it. Yeah. You know, stop acting like that. You know, get, get, be, be nice again. And uh, this film is not just about a nice old man. It's about a very talented artist who got yeah. in the cracks of everything. Yeah. But, it, but it proves that you don't have to be a jerk to be a good artist. I've had so many people tell me over the years that, you know, I've worked with uh, movie, a lot of movie directors and a lot of big famous celebrities. And for the most part, I, my career was full of people who really were nice. But every once in a blue moon, you'd run across somebody who was just a jerk to everybody. Yeah. And there would, there would always be that one person that says, yeah, but isn't he a genius? And it's like, yeah, he's maybe a genius, but you don't be a jerk to be a genius. Yeah. So, and, and that Horton is kind of proof of that, you know? Yeah. yeah. No, I think he's the, uh, I, I, he reminds me, I, I don't know because he's so. I guess in his way was so reserved. At least that's what comes kind of it, it reserved in a way. I mean, in in the sense that he wasn't the, he wasn't trying to be the, the center of attention certainly, uh, but, uh, um, yeah, I, I think it's it, what struck me in one of those. Even the he, he strikes me as one of these people who's just one big giant nerve ending basically he senses things you know yeah. there's this emotional what we call these days i guess emotional intelligence yes which many of us are lacking i think but uh well you know horton was the best listener i've ever met in my life and all all good writers uh the the two things that you need the most you don't have to have you don't have to be educated you don't have to be you, you don't even have to speak good grammar to be a good writer. All you need is the observation skills. If you're an observer and a good listener, and then you find your own voice mm. to reflect that to the, to the world, you're, you can write. And um, Horton was probably the best listener I've ever known. He was always the quietest man in the room. And that, again, when I talk about celebrity, you know, I've been around a lot of, uh, in my long career in the movie industry, I've, you know, I've been in a lot of social settings with, with, with celebrities that feel the need to, um, that they have to carry the conversation, that they have to hold court a little bit, that they, everyone's relying on them to, you know, to like kind of keep this. So, and not Horton. Horton was the opposite. Horton was the quietest guy in the corner just soaking up every little thing, you know? And uh, uh, he, he was, and he just didn't miss anything. And you know, when he would say to, uh, when he was talking to me back in those early days, I wasn't even writing back when I first met him. I didn't start writing for years after I met Horton. I was just a script supervisor, which is a technical job on the set. But I was telling him all these personal stories because he would ask me all these questions. And then he would say, you're writing this down, aren't you? And I would go, oh, should I write that down? He goes, yes, write that down. Don't forget that, you know? 
And uh, so he connected it to writing. But he was, he wasn't just, I don't know, he was just infinitely curious. I've never seen anyone as curious as he was. But you talk about also what, a, what an understated guy he was. And he never, he didn't really need a lot of attention. His hometown, this is something else that we, you know, touch on in the film. His hometown, they didn't really know who he was much. They didn't treat him like some big deal. And he, you know, he tells a really great story in the film about when he got the Pulitzer Prize. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be a spoiler alert here. I'm yeah. gonna make everyone who's listened to this, you gotta watch the film and see how Horton Foote found out he won the Pulitzer Prize. And um, he, uh, but that, that was exactly who he was. You know, he did not, it never occurred to him to, to seek attention. He didn't, I never saw him do it, you know? And uh, he said this, he said a wonderful thing in one of the many interviews that I would, would pulled out of the archives that I didn't use for the film, but I just, some of them are burned into my memory little moments. There was an interview he did. He was probably, it was quite, it was probably 30 or 40 years ago because he was, Horton would have been about maybe 60 in that interview. And it was Dan Rather interviewing Horton Foote. And uh, Dan, at the, they had a beautiful interview. And at the end of the interview, Dan said to him, uh, Horton, what, what do you think uh, should be on your tombstone? And Horton just stopped. And you could just tell by the look on his face, no one had ever asked him that. And he had never thought about it. Yeah. But he considered it a valid question. So he better come up with an answer, you know? And he, and he just, he took his time and then he said, he tried. <laughs> that's, what he, that's what he would have wanted on the Simpsons, he tried. <laughs> and I just, I, that's, a, that's one of those moments that's just burned into my memory from yeah. just seeing that in the interview in the archives, you know? Beautiful Horton moment. And uh, that's who he was. That's who he was, you know? Well, and as, as you've, you said, you met, you, you met on this set of uh, an amazing film. It's one of my, well, I haven't seen it in a long time, but I, I love Tender Mercies. Um, I mean, what was it? You, you're, you're, you already kind of explained what a script supervisor does, but how do you supervise Horton Foote's script? I mean, that sounds like a daunting a job for someone who's new to the business and uh um uh, and and what was it like i mean that must have been an incredible experience i think richard linklater's in the film talks about the 80s being an exciting time for independent films right robert duvall tess harper others in this film it must have been an amazing experience oh gosh it was it was that the, the very idea that i even got hired on that film i was just a i was a a script supervisor in Dallas who was just starting out. I mean, I had literally done like two little small local films. They weren't, they weren't big films at all. They were just some films that a local guy had written something and he hired a local crew and we kind of all threw in and mm. about half of us knew what we were doing and the other half didn't. And I was in the other half and uh, you learn as you go. And when Tender Mercies came to town, uh, Dallas was one of those run. That was one of the first, what they called the runaway production cities in the country. When productions first started going out of LA mm -hmm. and because they started figuring out we can do production cheaper than all the stuff that we have to pay for in LA. So Dallas was one of the first 
cities where that, and so the early 80s got really hot. And uh, they were actually doing a lot of those, at that time in the early 80s, there were a lot of movies of the week. These, the, the major networks That's were right. doing movies of the week. Yeah. So there were two experienced script supervisors in Dallas, and they got all the jobs that came from LA. And so all of a sudden this little film shows up one day and it's an Australian director and kind of a, kind of a low budget, you know, bunch of Australian cinematographer and editor and no one knew much about it. And it didn't, it wasn't on anybody's radar really. And those two script supervisors, they were, you know, I, the production manager called and figured out who the, the experienced script supervisors and both of those girls were like, well, um, we got, I already got a job. I'm going to stick with this job. I've got this television movie of the week. And the other yeah. one was on some, something like that too. So the job, all of a sudden it was like, there was no one to do this job unless they wanted to bring someone in. And it was recommended that they talk to me. I had little experience and, and why they took a chance on me. I don't know. I feel honored, but they threw the job at me. So that was, that was an amazing experience in itself. But to answer your question about how do you script supervise a Horton Foot script, you have to understand that uh, the script supervisor's job, they call it continuity in England mm. and in yeah. uh, a lot of other countries, but that job is a highly technical job. You take that script and you break it down technically every way you can. That, you know, the actor's journey, the, the, you, since a film is shot out of sequence, Mm. There has to be one person who's that circus net who totally keeps track of these minor nitpicky details about you're, you'll, you'll shoot a scene in a house and a guy walks out the door and there's a, in the movie, it carries on where you jump outside. He comes out the door, gets in his car and leaves. You're likely to shoot that scene outside two months later in a different city. Yeah. You have to match the door. You have to know when he walked out the door, did he have his coat open? Was his hat on? Was it in his hand? What? Did he have his briefcase in his left or his right hand? Yeah. There's continuity from scene to scene, but then also when you shoot a scene, you do 10 or 12, 15 shots of that scene, and you have to recre recreate it over and over and over. And somebody has to say, when you've moved all the furniture out of the room, and then you move all the furniture back in to shoot another shot, was that chair here or was that chair here? And was were those blinds open? Yeah. So when you talk about, those are the kind of things that a script supervisor does. It has nothing to do with, of, of course, it also had the responsibility of if, a, if an actor missed a line, yeah. I had to tell him his line. If, a, if an actor mismatched his action, if in the master he walked over there and then all of a sudden we're in his close-up and he walks to a different place, that's a script supervisor's job. So there's, all, there's that added thing that you have to go in there. You're the mistake catcher. <laughs> so, so my job was more about shooting Horton's script than it was about uh, the content. It wasn't at all about the content of the script. Okay. So it was just, I was, you're a, a script supervisor is the director's right-hand person. Okay. You know, and you, you track all of those details so the director's mind can be on the creative. He, all he has to worry about is the performance because I'm the one who's going to tell him they sat down on the wrong line or they right. stood up on the wrong line or, yeah. or that sort of thing, you know? And uh, so that job was not very related to what Horton did. Okay. Yeah. But, 
And what was it like working with Robert Duvall? Oh gosh, Duvall. Uh, I, I was very uh, honored to work with him again later, later, much later in my career as well and stayed friendly with him and still am on a, on a yeah. level. Um, he, um, he, Robert Duvall was one of the most flawless actors I ever worked with. And I mean, I worked with a lot of actors in my career and uh, great ones, but he, uh, he was uh, just masterful. It's, there's no doubt he won an Oscar for that role. Yeah. It's a beautiful performance. But he was, he was such a pro that he had, I don't know how he did it. And I worked with very few actors that had that gift that he did, um, where he had it so worked out in his head of what he was going to do in each scene that so, he didn't have to worry about the physicality. Mm. You know, a lot of actors get thrown like, oh gosh, well, every time I sit, they're sitting down and they're not, they're, something doesn't feel comfortable, so it affects their performance or whatever. He would have it so worked out that all of that stuff was done, taken care of, out of his way, so that all he had to do was go into that emotion and be that person and have the emotion he needed in that scene. And he never, he never made a mistake. The, the, uh, the first half of the movie, and I was, again, like I said earlier, I was very green, so uh, I, you know, it was a little nerve-wracking for me working for, with a star like him. But I never had to say anything to him because he never made a mistake. He never missed a line. He never mismatched his action. Yeah. So about halfway through the movie, I'd just say good morning when he'd walk in the set or something, and that was it. Yeah. And so I had no interaction with him. And about halfway through the movie, uh, I was much younger at the time. This was 1981 that we shot it. The, the crew had this habit of, we, shot, we, were, we had this main set that we shot on, this old motel set just out in the country on this long, long old dirt road. And the, we, the, this is typical of film crews. Film crews like to, get, if the weather's nice, they like to get outside on their lunch break and throw a football or somebody will put up a volleyball net mm -hmm. or some of them play baseball, throw a baseball around. And the guys on Tender Mercies, they got into this thing of figure, they had a football and they would try to figure out who, who could throw the, the longest pass. And I was a little jock. I grew up as a jock. And I could run and catch. Now I couldn't throw it out of my shadow, yeah. but I became their little, the, the, the catcher. And I would take <laughs> off running down the road and, and these guys would throw these long passes and I'd run out and catch the pass. And then I would have to run the ball back to them. I couldn't throw it back. I'd yeah. run two thirds back and then I'd throw it or something. Then I'd run out again. And one day Duvall was out on the set watching and he got intrigued with this. Because usually he wasn't out there at lunch, but he was out there one day at lunch. And when I came back to the set that day, he goes, hey, Tex. And he calls me over. He calls me Tex, you know. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, me, yeah. And uh, he goes, you got brothers, don't you? And I said, yeah, I've got, I said, I got one brother and I got two sisters that might as well be brothers. Yeah. And because uh, they're jocks too. And he said, boy, you can catch that football. And he got, I became his favorite person on the crew because I could catch a football. Had nothing to do with whether I was any good at the job because Robert Duvall didn't need me. Yeah. He didn't need me to tell him anything. He was, if, if every actor was like Robert Duvall, there would not be a position called script supervisor because no mistakes would be made. Maybe they'd have somebody that had to check the prop department or the, 
you know, the set dressers or something, but, but you wouldn't have to worry about actors. And I worked with very few other actors who were that good at the whole package. He was amazing. And then you've, you moved into screenwriting and, and you worked with the other legends and you worked with uh, Robert Altman. How was, I mean, uh, Cookie's Fortune, I guess. That, how, I mean, what was that like? I mean, he's, he's, oh he's legendary. Well, you know, I, uh, Altman actually started my screenwriting career. I had, um, I had been script supervising for a long time and I'd just started trying. This was when I was in, this was probably back in, uh, uh, gosh, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, this was probably in uh, 90, somewhere around, I was, it was the early 90s. And I started trying to write some stories down because I had too many people tell me, you're such a good storyteller. Why don't you try to write some of these stories down? So I started trying to do it and I felt like I was kind of all over the map. And uh, so I went away to Oxford, Mississippi for a year. I took a year off, went and lived in this town, Oxford, and took a short story workshop by one of my heroes named Barry Hanna, who's no longer with us, but Barry Hanna was a brilliant short story writer. And I found out he taught there. And when I was, I was working on a movie up in uh, Memphis called The Firm uh, mm -hmm. with Sidney Pollack and Tom Cruise and that whole crowd. Yeah. And someone said, you need to go down to this town and go visit Oxford. It's about an hour south of Memphis. And I would go down there on weekends and stuff. Anyway, bottom line is I figured out that Barry taught there. I went there for, I saved enough money to go there for a year. And I started writing short stories and I got one published at the end of that journey in a little literary magazine in New York. And, and it just inadvertently found its way to Altman. Now, I knew Altman socially because my ex-husband used to work on, on some movies with him. Mm. And I used to, I had gone to the racetrack with him and I had been out drinking with him, but I never worked for him. But it was a one page story that got published in a New York journal. And he read it and called me. And I was on another film set by that time. And uh, I, I had this message to call Robert Altman and I called him back at lunch and he talked to me for about 30 minutes about how much he loved that story and did I have any more? And we, we had this whole conversation about movies are more like short stories than they are novels. And uh, I was scared to send him any more stories. And he kept bugging me to send him some more stories. And I thought, oh, he's read the best one. That's the only one I ever had published. If I send him up more, he'll think they won't to be as good, so he'll write me off. And I said, Bob, let me write some new stories. He's like, no, 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 I want them now. So I, you know, got courageous and sent him some more stories that I had written for Barry's class. And he loved about three of them. And he put me under contract to write for him. And it started out as a contract for a year. And it turned into two years, then turned into three years. And in those three years, I got a, we got uh, Cookie's Fortune was the first film and the Dr. T and the Women was the second film we made. Uh, and then we had done a television episode of a short-lived series called Gun that he was a part of for a short while. Mm. And all three of these, the, all three of the, the, the two movies and the television episode were based on my short stories. And so I had this kind of miraculous run with Robert Altman because he just tapped into me for a while and uh, somehow liked how I wrote. And we were, we were very different in a way. Altman's cynical, and I'm not as cynical as Altman, but we sort of, I kind of smoothed his edges and he roughed mine up a little bit. 
and somehow he just liked my voice and um, we had a good run and it was that's one of the greatest things that's ever happened to me the my, my run with Robert Altman uh, I miss him like crazy you know mm. he was another great one that's that's an amazing story um, and speaking of stories, and I, I don't usually do this. I don't usually do a, we don't, when we do research, I try not to read other interviews because it kind of prejudices you myself when I'm going to ask right. questions and things, but you do bring up, I did read the Texas monthly interview. Um, and you talk about, I think it ends with you talking about the storyteller telling tradition in Texas. And we've had other Texas filmmakers on and of your generation and now of millennials. And so these are, these are people who've grown up with TV, but they still talk. Uh, it is interesting, and I, I, I told you, but I mean, I've been over here a long time, but I was born and raised in Texas. So there's something about, there is, you know, is that something you and also, I guess, Horton was drawing on as well, this sort of, I don't know what it is about Texas culture. And I, it's not just Texas, other you know, parts of the United States have this, but I mean, especially Texas seems to have this whole storytelling tradition. Yeah, well, you know, I was born uh, a long time ago, and uh, long before we 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 got a television when I was maybe five or six, you know. But even in those days, you didn't watch TV at all during the day. You might turn it on for thirty minutes of news in the morning. There were only you only had three networks to look at. Then then and you wouldn't even turn it on at night until after you'd had supper and done your homework and everything. And your family might let you watch one or two shows and that was it. And you, you know, and that's that's the, the farm life. But um we had no and we were in the we were very remote. The town I was born in, Amarillo, Texas was a hundred miles away and it was the biggest town of any size near us. Yeah. So we were in the big middle of nowhere. So the entertainment at night, uh, a lot of times was not TV, and it, we certainly wasn't any of this internet phone stuff. Yeah. It was people uh, just recapping the day and, and telling, mm. you know, after dinner or during supper, we called it supper then, we didn't, have, we didn't call it dinner. But um, you would get either sit on the porch or, I don't want to make it sound like, you know, cliched in any way. Exactly. You would, you would, you would sit outside or people would go up to other people's houses and you entertained each other with stories. And it was, um, um, you could make a story out of just some mundane thing happened at the post office that yeah. day. And next thing you know, somebody had spun some yarn with it and then whether it was true or not. And then someone would play off of that and tell you their little story of what happened. And you, th those, those guys would talk into the night, you know, and uh, Horton's from that same era, you know, he was even obviously way before me when they, he didn't even have television. So it, it was uh, oral storytelling is a tradition. People talk about how, it, oh, Texas are storytellers and, the, and Southerners are storytellers. I, as if other people in the country are not, and I, I always think about that phenomenon. I think, you know, people in Ohio, people in New York, people in Oregon, they didn't have, they, they, they were the same as we were. They had to tell stories at night. So there must be something about the, the, the culture of, of Texans and Southerners. And I think they're two different things. Mm -hmm. Texas is a bookend of the South, in my opinion. Yep. 
I've always thought Texas and Florida are bookends of the South, and you've got the South. And I have a real affinity to the South as well. But Texans are, um, the East Texans are different than West Texans. And there's a, I'm from a very patriarchal society, which is the West Texas society. Whereas you go, you get farther East and on the Louisiana border, it, those, that, that's more of a matriarchal uh, world. So the patriarchal folks where I came from are a little bit more stoic and a little more buttoned up and a little less emotional. Whereas you get more in East Texas and into the South, it's more of, it, it, that's, that's where the Tennessee Williams hysteria comes in, you know. Uh, but I do think there is a, an element of Texans and Southerners that uh, they don't mind spilling all their flaws. They don't, we, they don't hide their flaws somehow. They're, somehow they're more vulnerable openly and I think that that's what intrigues people from different parts of the company, country that aren't that way. Mm. That that lends itself to storytelling a little bit in a different, maybe maybe not more, but in a different way, you know. And that's why there have been so many great writers that come out of the South for that very reason. That it's um, it is not odd to be odd. It's yeah. not weird to be weird. You know, they, Southerners don't hide it. Yeah. And so it makes, the storytelling is uh, like free for all. And maybe that's what it is. This is just my speculation. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, and getting back to, you know, you, you had these short stories you did and that Robert Altman tapped into them. I mean, how do you, how do you get that? How do you make this great script? How do you get the words to jump off the page? You know, and and do you think, do you are you thinking of actors? I don't mean necessarily specific actor, but are you thinking of actors when you're doing this? I I I don't think I have ever written anything that with an actor in mind. Um, I um, you know I might have a character characteristic of somebody in mind, whether it's a real person or an actor or what. Uh, certainly, I, uh, I, I pull from people I know and quirks somebody has. You know, Cookie's Fortune is, there's some family, there's a lot of fam family mm -hmm. stuff in Cookie's Fortune that I kind of pull from some of my own experience. But when I start writing these, um, when I start writing my stories, you know, I start hearing voices and I don't really even see the faces so much. I sort of see a vague, maybe a vague image, but it's more about hearing their voices. And um, uh, I, don't, I don't see anyone in particular. I just see this conglomeration of uh, every character I've written has a little bit of, probably all of them have a little bit of me in them. But this one might have a lot of my sister in it, and this one might have a lot of a great aunt in it, and this one yeah. might have a lot of just some somebody I knew, you know. And uh, I don't, I have never ever written for, uh, you know, particular. In fact, um, when you write for Robert Altman, you're always shocked at who he casts. He's got <laughs> one of those crazy ways of he had one of those crazy ways of casting. He would cast somebody, and I'd go, really. And then that person would end up being my favorite one in the movie. Yeah. You know, uh, and not, it's not like I had favorites. I loved them all. But the, an example of that was in Cookie's Fortune. Liv Tyler, uh, 
I had worked with Liv twice when I worked as a script supervisor on movies. And she is the sweetest, kindest kid. And she's not a kid anymore, but she was then. Yeah. And, but even she even, that even came across in her acting. She's soft mm -hmm. and she was de a little delicate and a little fragile. And he, I wrote this rebel child in Cookie's Fortune, this little rebel. And the ordinary person would have gone out there and cast little, some little rebel actress, you know, and kind of stereotyped it a little bit. And Bob cast Liv, and when he told me that, it was kind of a double-edged sword for me because I thought, hmm, Liv Tyler, because I loved her dearly. I met her and I just adored her. And I thought she was really good, but I thought, really? She's gonna play Emma in the, okay, I'm like, you know, but you go with whatever Altman does, so. And she's genius in the film because she didn't, she did she played it from a different place, you know. So that's why you don't write for an actor. That's why you don't write for a, you, you write this and then you let somebody else interpret it. And you know when you're writing it, that's what you're going to do, you know. And I, and I guess where I was going with this question, because I wasn't thinking necessarily even so much specifically act, a specific actor, but what struck me, if we take this back to Horton Foote, is oh. that he struck me as, you could describe him as a, a playwright who was an actor's best friend, you know, because you think about it, you know, he does the screenplay for To Kill a Mockingbird and Gregory Peck gets best actor. He, get, he does, you know, Tender Mercies, Robert Duvall. Uh, he never, the one thing he didn't win, uh, Horton, was a Tony, but I wouldn't be, I don't know this, but I wouldn't be surprised if someone from one of his plays didn't get a Tony. Yeah, after his death, they did a black version on stage of uh, Trip to Bountiful and Cicely Tyson won a Tony. Yeah, there you go, you know. Um, and of so, course, Geraldine Page won a Tony as well for Trip to Bountiful on the, in the film. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, so, what, was, uh, so what, was his, what was his genius, do you think? You know, I, I would ask actors over my career about, you know, uh, or even not even actors, I could ask directors and people mm -hmm. who work closely with actors, you know, what, is it, what does it take to be that, the difference in a good actor and a great actor, you know? And uh, I got this, the, the answer I would frequently get from the people who really knew and, and got in the cracks of that was honesty. The best actors are the ones that are the most honest. They find their their own truth in this character, and then they they portray it honestly. And I think the same thing goes for writing. Mm. That Horton's honesty went into those characters. So if you take you take a a writer like Horton, who is infinitely honest, every one of his characters are are honest. There's a there's an honesty to it, and then you. You pull out, pull an actor like Robert Duvall, who there's never an honest, dishonest moment in his acting, uh, Geraldine Page and those guys, yeah. then you, that's where magic happens. Yeah. And I would just say that it's, it's all about honesty. And um, uh, it, it, no matter how hard or soft or tough or gentle or whatever that character is and what they're doing, it has to be honest, you know. Um, and if you write a serial killer, you can't just say he's a serial killer. Yeah. You need to know why. Yeah. And you need to know what, okay, there's one good thing about that serial killer. What is it? Well, he 
supports his mother, you know, I don't know. You got to find the honesty in it, yeah. you know. And Harden was a genius at that. That's why actors love doing his work because they didn't have to do any of that work for him. I've seen actors so many times on sets of when I was a script supervisor where they had to take dishonest material and make it honest when it came out of their mouths. And some actors could do it and some couldn't. And the film, you know, would suffer or, or benefit from whichever mm. one happened. But the honesty is key in it, I think, in all of art. Um, and that's why Horton was, he just gave you that foundation. And do you have a favorite uh, play or screen? What are your favorite plays or screenplays of his? Of Horton's? Yeah. You know, I have to say, um, the, the, the film, is even though I worked on Tender Mercies, and the obvious answer would be Tender Mercies, yeah. because it's so close to my heart, the film that just, I, it's like a velvet dagger to me, is Trip to Bountiful. Yeah. Uh, and that's because, like most of Horton's work, everybody finds something in there that they relate to, you know? Mm. And I relate so closely to Trip to Bountiful in so many ways about going home and home is really not there anymore, uh, but, but it, it's there in your memory. And uh, uh, she, I, I cry every time I see that film. <laughs> You know, she, I cry every time. I've, I've seen my film 300 times probably or more just through all the different variations, gyrations of it. And every time I get to the moment in the film where we have a clip of, of Geraldine That's right. Pace getting out of the car and looking at that old falling down shack in the high grass and, and, and saying, I'm home. And it's so sad. Yeah. And I just, I still go. Yeah. And uh, that film just, just rips my heart out. Uh, one of his plays that I love that I've never seen staged, and before before I go, I want to see this stage somewhere. I got to find a, a you know a, a performance of it and just go. Is that that on the page is as good as it gets? Is a play he wrote called Habitation of Dragons. Mm. And there's two. If you'll notice, there's two monologues in the film that I pulled from Habitation of Dragons. Yeah. Uh, they also did a television show of that. So there is a TV movie called Habitation of Dragons, but it was originally a play. And uh, the just reading the words on the page, that one's also one of my that just knocks me out. You know. I think you raise a good uh, you raise a good point there in that. Um... You know, you, you, I think you spoke earlier about how this um, speaks to, you know, people are talking about how this speaks to young artists and writers <laughs> and they should see this film. I mean, how do, if for those who are listening to this podcast, how do they, I mean, obviously we can see some of the movies, we can probably stream them somewhere, but how, you know, are, are his plays going to, are they still being staged? You know, what, what, what would your advice be? Or is it about just going to the library and seeing if you can find any of his plays published you know i you can find his plays published there's collections of them yeah and uh it might take um for instance there's a big fat version that i i looked up for a friend just the other day there's a book about that big that is a collect a collection of his one act plays mm. and oh th there's some genius one act plays in there and that he wrote and did over the years and you know you can find that 
you can you can find that online. Just yeah. go, you know, Google it and find a number of booksellers that sell. Uh, there's there's all kinds of variations of, um, uh, you know, th there'll be a collection of three screenplays. The, obviously, the movies are easier to find because you could find Tinder Mercies, you can find uh, to Kill a Mockingbird, everyone yeah. can find that. You can find Trip to Bountiful, you can find his movies. But as far as the plays, you can find you can find them published and i think it's easier now to even get the little published versions of just the play i think there's services that do that um but every once in a while there you know these theaters still do his plays college theaters still do his plays and uh to be honest i am hoping that if i can get enough people to see this film and to have to give horton a little uh presence again right now i would love to to uh encourage college theater programs or um any any kind of theater programs mm -hmm. and theaters to bring back some of these horton foot plays i'm hoping my film does that i'm hoping my film makes the world aware of him a little bit more again uh, you talk, you know, earlier we talked a little bit about where is this film going to be distributed. Obviously, it's probably going to hit some streaming service or a or a PBS American Masters or something out there is going to work. But I'm going to make sure. This is where I'm just learning this next step. But I'm going to make sure that I keep some kind of control over the educational rights to this film because I want to I want I want to see this film available in college theater programs and in uh, writing programs I wanted I want it accessible to to the to that because I think it can only be a benefit to 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 the young playwrights of today and young theater directors of today these these plays are uh, they're they're amazing and they're gonna stand withstand time and they're great vehicles for so many characters that uh, that actors can stretch, directors can stretch. It's there's a there's there's a there's a endless you know uh, wealth of work there that I would like to see revived, and maybe this film will will make a little bit of that happen. Well, I, I, I hope. Well, I sure hope, hope. I sure hope so too. Um, I mean, and we've, I, 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 I'm uh, aware that we, I didn't even ask if, you know, if you had anything on after this, so you, we're probably cutting into something else you're supposed to be doing. No, uh, you're, I was free this afternoon, so that's, that's good. Uh, but what's, what's next for you? I mean, I know you've got this on your hands at the moment, but do you have uh, any projects in the works in addition to, uh, to everything that's going on with the uh, Horton Foot uh, doc? Well, you know, it's funny because um, I'm kind of one of those people that, uh, especially as, as I've gotten older, I don't put all my eggs in one basket. I kind of, I, you know, I, I kind of do a lot of different things. And um, uh, as far as screenplays, I do have two screenplays that I'm still trying to get off the ground somewhere, completed screenplays, that I would love it if I could find a home for them. And uh, what one is a film that I wrote quite a few years ago, but people still to this day, a lot of people still want to make this film, so it might happen. 
and another one is just a more recent uh, script that I wrote just a couple of years ago. So, but those are written and done, and they're it's just a matter of trying to get those, find a home for those. But what? I'm, but as far as a creative endeavor, um, I had a, about about a, a couple of years ago, I started writing uh, a book that is sort of a memoir. It's a I call it a it's memoir ish, mm -hmm. and it's a lot of personal stories. And I found a little a, a side angle to come in on it, so that I'm not hitting a straight head-on memoir. Yeah. And I, I had to put that aside this past year, year and a half, because it's been nonstop documentary. So I'm dying to get back to that book. Um, and then, as far as one other creative outlet I've got, whether this will ever amount to anything outside my own little studio, I don't know. But uh, I started uh, drawing about three or four years ago. And I'm completely obsessed with the easel now and, and drawing. And uh, it, that's, it, every time I have time in the spaces, all I want to go do is that somehow that has just been that, the one thing that cleanses my palate better than anything, my emotional palate. And uh, so I, what I want to do is get back to the easel and get back to the memoir. Um, if I got one of these movies off the ground, there's nothing I would like more than to go make another movie. Mm. Uh, you know, who knows? That's kind of what's up. So, you know, I've got a couple of plates spinning out there. Okay. That's, uh, that sounds great. And it sounds to me that you're very, ex very efficient with your time. <laughs> I'm pretty efficient with my time. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, don't, I can procrastinate with the best of them, believe me and slough off but but you know if i don't do if i don't if i don't do something creative and in, in every day there's just something that's not right at the end of the day if i haven't created a little something whether it's a paragraph mm. of this or a, i've gone in and fixed a note i like to paint faces or draw faces rather mm. i'm into the kind of faces thing and if I get a nostril right, then I, you know, in one day that I did something, you know, and uh, I just, I've always had this urge to keep creating something. I've had a lot of people in Q and A's uh, since we've been doing a little bit of screening work with this film say, what's your next documentary? And I'm like, oh my gosh, do I have to do another one? <laughs> uh, but I've had people ask me, would you do another one? And if you'd asked me that question a year ago, I would have said, no way, this is too much work. This took me too long. But the answer now that I have the finished product and I, 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 I really am happy with it and all of that, basically the way I answer that question now is, I would, I would only do another documentary if I had as much passion for the subject matters I did yeah. for the yeah. That's what it would take. But I think one thing that, uh, if I may say, what you bring to this, to the documentary world, which you don't, I mean, you know, there's a, obviously there's a lot of amazing documentarians, but I think it's your writer's craft, I think, is a, is a, un, not so much unique, but it's a, it, it's a, it's quite a benefit, I think, because uh, you said it was an hour and a half, I don't think it is even now, it's like an hour and 17, but I, I did, I think, but it's, uh, it's really, um, it's tight. Yeah, I would say, uh, you know, you're not, uh, you know, and, and in having watched, a, watching a lot of documentaries these days, hosting this podcast, and uh, that isn't always the case. You know, you always feel like, oh, that's maybe, well, that one maybe ran about 10, 20 minutes too long. It, it didn't, right. 
this didn't feel that way at all. I mean, I think, and, and also an idea, I mean, there's a lot of good storytellers out there in terms of whether they know it or not, maybe not even on the written page who are putting documentaries together now. But uh, I think it is something if you do consider doing, I, 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 I think you've got a great idea for the arc of the story and how to, how to, uh, obviously you do, cause that's, that's, that's your profession. And uh, um, so, so thank you. I meant to say that earlier on, thank you for making this film. Um, well, listen, I've, it was an honor for me. It wasn't even, it wasn't, it, at times it felt like a job and it felt like I was pushing a wagon up the hill by myself, but uh, it was an honor in the end to be able to make this film about Horton, you know, and it was worth, uh, there were times where I wasn't sure it was gonna be worth the time I spent, but yeah. it, in the end it is, you know, it's well worth it. Okay. Um, so, um, because I love that guy, and uh, you can't not fall in love with him, you know, if you've spent any time with him, and I think you can't watch this film and not fall in love with him. You know, he just, uh, he's one of the, he's a, I'll use the word everybody's using, he's a comfort, you know. Yeah. yeah. Maybe, and that's probably where we should leave it. I think the thing that strikes me is he's almost the exact same age my grandfather was. And I think there is something grandfatherly too about him that's probably comforting to it yes. to us all. We probably could all use a good grandfather these days. Um, well, I would just want to thank you, Anne, Anne Rapp, the director and producer of Horton Foot Road to Home. Thank you so much for coming to the uh, On to the Factual America podcast. Uh, I want to give a shout out to This Is Distorted Studios in Leeds, England. Uh, please, please remember to like us and share us with your friends and family wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. And this is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Almo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures. Be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.